what happened to Brett Kavanaugh is now happening to everyone who stands in the mob's way. Not my words this week, but a reader of Common Sense, because this is commonsense.org. And this podcast is This Week in Common Sense, starring you, Paul Jacob, talking about the big stories this week that appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. I already said that this was not my words this week, but it was a response to Twitter Gulag and what was really an excellent piece by Isabella Tabarovsky. She wrote in Tablet, and it was a piece basically connecting what is happening in America today to what happened in the Soviet Union in terms of a society that bullies people and if you say something that's not part of the established order, maybe it's some medical advice that, that the CDC doesn't agree with or that, that the World Health Organization disagrees with or whatever it is. Uh, but if you say something that's not part of the governing consensus, then you are set upon and bullied and ridiculed and mocked and you lose your job. And and we're seeing that in America today. And of course, it, it, it's interesting because <clears throat> the connections to what happened in the Soviet Union are so solid. But when I think of this, I almost always think of the Cultural Revolution, uh, which I guess is a little bit more recent. The Cultural Revolution being what, the late mid to late 60s, uh, and um, and then continuing on. I didn't. They, they never sent me a memo saying, "Hey, here was the end date," but uh, I could probably Google it. Um, interestingly enough, the the uh, you know whether you're looking at communist China or the Soviet Union and communist country, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine the level of, you know, there's, there's something totalitarian in that, you know, if you were ridiculed in the 18th century, you know, if you, if you, you know, <laughs> rode your horse far enough outside of town, there was probably nobody who knew you had just been ridiculed in the modern era uh, the the power of media and you know it, it can be a power for good but it can also be a power for bad and when you know we, you you look at what's happening today some of the ridicule and some of the hazing isn't organizational government uh, but there is that connection and that was you know I think I think something that you have every reason to be afraid of the direction that this country is going in terms of its connection with the government, but even outside of that and in the social media sphere um, where, you know, you may be silenced, you may be canceled, uh, or you may have a mob uh, attacking you in all kinds of different ways. Our next commentary on Tuesday was erecting democracy. And I think it's I, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast and most of the people in the United States of America and the world for that matter, but especially in the United States, look at what's happening with Twitter and Facebook and others and just with the mob, uh, which is almost always on the left these days, uh, they're out of power, but it's been on the right before and uh, sadly will probably be again. But but with all of that. It's, uh, I think most people, that's not, not their first instinct that somehow this is, you know, this is what we ought to be doing because someone can say something that's wrong or make a mistake and, and we don't need mobs to, you know, correct them. And it, and it doesn't hurt to correct, but that sort of activity is, it's destabilizing, it's frightening, it's, it's designed to terrorize in a sense. And yet I, I, you know, we then go Tuesday and we talk about statues and monuments and what do we, you know, what do we do? How do we deal with, you know, sometimes things change and, 
And I think for some people, they look at this and they think, well, this is ridiculous. They're tearing down monuments. There's nothing. These monuments aren't hurting anybody. It's part of history. There's a zillion different arguments, I think, on that side to say this is all ridiculous. On the other side, you've got people saying this person was involved in slavery and slavery is wrong. And and sometimes, obviously, you know, as, as we pointed out, sometimes they miss the mark and they they, you know, vandalize and destroy uh, someone who is an abolitionist. Uh, and, and you know, that was done this past week. Or, you know, they're talking about tearing down Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, a statue. And, and I look at that, that statue, that monument there, and, uh, and I think it looks kind of funny to me. But, but it, it goes to the whole, what's, how do we solve these problems? How do we deal with these issues? And I, I started this uh, commentary by pointing to the picture in my mind, uh, and by the way, there's a link at the website, this is commonsense.org, but there's a link and, and you should go because I was, uh, I thought this was really two minutes well spent to listen to the guy. This was a BBC interview of the fellow who started in Iraq in Baghdad, banging his sledgehammer on the base of that statue and he and others, a mob formed, and they tore down Saddam Hussein's statue. And I'm, I was totally against the invasion of Iraq. I think it may turn out to be one of the stupidest things that any country has ever done in the history of the world. So I was totally against that. So it wasn't like I was just ready to rah-rah, but I remember seeing that statue come down and thinking, good, this guy's, I mean, as much as I didn't want us to invade and get sucked into this quagmire, and I didn't think it was going to necessarily help the Iraqi people, which seems to have also been true, um, I, he was a thug. He was a terrible despot. And uh, seeing his statue come down, it's kind of hard not to think, hey, that's great. But I think the reason I wanted to put that out there is for people to see there are times when it does sure does seem to make sense to tear this statue down. I think the biggest difference is that was sort of a revolutionary, even though it was more of an invasion. But for the Iraqi person on that street, and of course, if you if you go to this video that's at uh, thisiscommonsense.org, it's erecting democracy is the script, uh, the commentary. We started as a radio program, so I often say script. But it's it's the it's the sort of thing where he was not he he worked for Saddam Hussein for a while, and then he turned against him. He saw some of the terrible things he did, and he hated him. But in this video, he talks about how he's not so sure this was a good thing because it's worse now. He makes the point that it's kind of like going from one. Uh, you know, despot to thousands of despots, and uh, which is is interesting. It always reminds me of the movie uh, The Patriot, where the the lead guy, whoever it is, I think he's supposed to be. Uh, oh, now I'm going to forget uh, uh, Colonel Marion, uh, the Swamp Fox, or something. I think that's who it's based on. I could be wrong. It's it's happened before, but um, but it in that. Thing. He's he's arguing with other people who want to rebel against uh, Great Britain, and he makes the point: I'm not sure if I'm more afraid of a despot 3,000 miles away or 3,000 despots just one mile away. And uh, and so anyway, uh, I I went on a tangent because I love them that uh, that line. But anyway, with the statues that are coming down all over the place. It seems to me that some of these statues offend enough people that I can imagine I want them to come down. Uh, I asked some of my friends uh, that I met last year in Taiwan, what do they think about Chiang Kai-shek and the fact that there are statues all over the country and pictures and different things. And, and that society is kind of dealing with this. So this is not, you know, just... FYI, this is not unique to America. Uh, of course, that, that history is much more recent than some of this history, but of course, history is continuous. So, so I want to open up the possibility and, and the reality that I, as a person, I live in Prince William County, Virginia. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, 
why is my county named after some royal somewhere? Because I don't like the idea of royals. And I don't want to I don't want to push that on. At the same time, life is short and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not upset enough about it to spend the rest of my life trying to change the name of my county. And so I think that's where where we find ourselves in some cases. In other cases, there's going to be a legitimate argument about whether Ulysses S. Grant, who was the general who took the Union Army to success, defeating the South and ending slavery for good in the country, at least that sort of slavery. There's still people dragged off the street and enslaved privately, but at least it wasn't, you know, it didn't be, it, it isn't okay anymore. We fought a war. He won the war. He was also, uh, a, you know, big president in Reconstruction. It's not as if if he did public actions that I have heard of that that would cause someone who opposed slavery and who opposes racism to say he's a terrible person, but he did marry into a family and his wife's family had slaves. So, you know, you're going to have arguments. You can you have uh, uh, Francis Scott Key. There's there's something uh, I can't remember it at the moment. It skips my mind. But but uh, there was some connection to slavery. So and then, of course, there's other cases that statues have been destroyed. and There's no connection. But the question is, how do we deal with this? And it seems to me that if these are in on public property, that the public has a role in deciding it. And the only way to decide public things is to vote democratically. And and of course, in some cases, these were privately given to the public. In those cases, you want to return them. I understand from my conversations with people in Taiwan that a lot of the Chiang Kai-shek statues and monuments have now been moved to property controlled by Chiang Kai-shek's family and so on, or, or whoever. I think that's who it is. Um, and, and there are like 250 monuments in this in this, uh, you know, space here that that uh, to hold them. There's still some in public. His picture still in the legislative wand and so on. So it's not as if he's been eradicated, but that process has begun. And and it seems to me that we want to go through some sort of process that would be fair. We don't want a mob. My goodness. You know, it's hard to think no matter where you are in this in this debate that what we want on a regular basis is mobs making our public policy decisions for us. That's kind of the whole point of civilization is to avoid that. That's called anarchy and not not the voluntarist world without uh, terrible governments. Nice anarchy. That's kind of the chaos uh, riots in the streets anarchy. So it, it seems very simple. We vote. We hold a vote. We stop all the fighting and we hold a vote and we discuss it. And the, the benefits are huge because it's not just that now the mob doesn't decide. And now we have a process that I think has some respect, a majority rule to decide. But there's also a campaign. There's a there's a debate and a discussion, because in some of these, I don't think there'll be that much debate. On others, there's, there'll be a lot of debate. But we get to, one, debate it and discuss it reasonably instead of as a mob. And two, because mobs, you know, discussions around mobs just seem slightly altered. And, uh, and two, we get to see what the public thinks. And here's the beauty. We could vote again on it sometime. If people had an initiative process and really wanted to, or if public officials wanted to put it on the ballot, even in the places that don't have the initiative process. So this, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And of course, um, I, I think most people agree, <laughs> agreed with my, uh, the thrust of what I was saying. But I think it's it's interesting. I, we got a comment from Pat, uh, who comments quite a bit at the website, and she made the point, which of course takes us right into Wednesday's uh, commentary, but she made the point, and I'll just quote her, in order for voting to work, both sides have to agree to accept the outcome. And, uh, and accept may be too strong a word, her word. 
but but you know what she's talking about. And except, of course, you can always fight to change it. You can do it. But what she's talking about is you can't have a vote on a statue. And then if you lose the vote, go destroy the statue. Because that creates the dynamics for there to be some sort of civil war where there's nothing we can do but fight. That is what the whole idea behind civilization is meant to stop. Mobs and fights and violence and death and destruction. We are going through something that the problem isn't going through this discussion. The problem isn't, uh, isn't necessarily politics, except it is in the sense that we constantly talk about, Tim, which is that we don't have the kind of representation that makes hardly anybody, wherever you are in the spectrum, you don't feel like public officials are representing you very well because, get this, they're not. Um, but that's, that's not that that's a separate matter, but that's not exactly what's at work here. But it, it segues into, again, um, a lack of respect. I'm, I'm saying it's going to segue into Wednesday's commentary, but it also, I, I just wanted to, <laughs> as I'm segueing, I wanted to jump back and say one more thing, which is that um, there's a lack of respect for democracy. And and I'm, I'm not saying, oh, democracy is always perfect because it, if you're not if you're not honest and 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 don't admit that people make bad votes and bad things happen in democracy, then you're you're a lunatic as well. But I think that it's that our public officials, the last thing in the world they want is for the public to vote on this issue or or any issue for that matter, but especially this issue. And I suspect that the worst elements of this whole debate will hate, hate the people voting on whether to keep statues or remove them individually or in mass or however they want to vote on it. But the people who care about this issue, who are not on wild extremes about it, will love it. And it will help heal some of the division, I think. And that's, I think that's always a good thing. It's not a good thing for politicians necessarily because this division works. It works for them. It doesn't work so much for us. Interesting about the division and about not accepting election results is Q&A and Q&A, which is Trevor Noah with the, uh, the Daily Show. I guess now it's the Daily Social Distancing Show. But he has Joe Biden on. And he asked Joe Biden a question which I just will say at the get-go, I didn't say it at the get-go in the commentary, uh, but I will hear, is a stupid question. Is a almost a dangerous question in the sense that it's being asked all the time and talked about all the time. And he asked um, uh, Joe Biden, what, you know, what's going to happen? What, what are you going to do? What's the country going to do? Do you worry about Donald Trump losing the election and refusing to leave the White House. And somehow, you know, I don't know, he calls up the military or somehow takes over the country in a coup. Now, and I'm sure that there are all kinds of people suffering from Trump derangement syndrome right now who will tell me that Paul, he's done all kinds of things that suggest this will be the next thing he, he does, you know, that, that that's perfectly in character. But I submit to you, that's there's just no evidence that he's done anything along those lines or that he would. In fact, when he won the first time, lots of people said he didn't even really want to win. He was doing it to build up his name ID. Now, I don't know what goes on in Donald Trump's head. I'm not in there. I don't think these people do either. But to go from this guy didn't even really want to be president. He just wanted the name ID, which, of course, if you poll him, he's got 100 percent name ID. So I, I think it's a pretty stupid move if you're trying to go from 100 to 100 on name ID. You could do it without running for president. But now he so wants power that he won't give it up. And since you have absolutely zero evidence for that suspicion, 
why would it be so publicly talked about? It's not abnormal, I think, for someone to ask this. I've heard other people say he might not leave if he loses. I've heard other people talk about it, both on TV and in real life. And it is crazy. And as we point out, it does have some impact. The impact being that it creates this dynamic that if the other side would do that, and of course there's no evidence that they would, but if we just say it enough and we wave our hands wildly and say, well, if they're going to do that, then we should be able to do anything. It sets the stage for bad behavior. And that... (laughs) We already have so much bad behavior. Let's not set any stages uh, to make it even worse. But of course, the funny thing about all of this, as as you and I joked about uh, this week, is that they made the charge before that Donald Trump won't accept the election results. And his not accepting them, why is that so terrible and evil and rotten? His not accepting the election results will split the country, will create this division and animosity and maybe, uh, you know, rebellion and resistance and all kinds of terrible isms and so on. And of course, he was asked to accept the election ahead of the election actually being held to say in advance that it was done just fine and honestly to where, you know, if you if you held everybody in, you know, uh, Alabama at gunpoint, except for a few Democrats who went and voted and he lost Alabama, that he'd have to say, oh, it must have been a, a fair election. It, completely ridiculous. And again, setting it up that he must be a terrible guy because you're asking him, are you going to do this terrible thing as if he's a terrible guy? Are you going to not accept the election results, even though it's obvious that they were fair, was basically their question. But Trump's not an idiot, and at least not in that way. No, he's not an idiot. And he says, come on, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you uh, 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 an answer ahead of time that I'll accept. And he kind of defers and and uh, well, he, he acts like his usual self. And Hillary Clinton pounces and makes it clear this is the sort of terrible guy who will not accept the election results and is destroying the country or will destroy it. And then Donald Trump wins. And not only does Hillary, I think, still to this day have an awfully hard time because she spent so many times blaming everybody for it, has an awful hard time accepting it. But you've got a huge slice of the country. And I'm not talking about, you know, from some poll. I'm talking about a huge slice of the country that's on television every day as a media person or who writes a column or who works for a media organization or the entire Democratic Party and their apparatus around it in terms of the different groups and organizations. So, and and to this day argue that somehow Russia gave him the election, which I think is just, you know, it, it's such a close election, you could say all kinds of things, but it's just ridiculous. And, you know, I've heard for years, different people with all kinds of conspiracy, oh, they somehow did the vote this way because our guy didn't win. It's it's two year old stuff for the most part. Not that there haven't been elections where somebody cheated, but I hear all the time people suggesting that there's cheating going on when I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, people voted the way they wanted to vote. You didn't like the vote. And that's frankly what happened here. Uh, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by three million votes across the country. But she didn't win in key places and in key places where you could see that Donald Trump was going to have more resonance than he might have somewhere else. And frankly, in key places that if the Clinton campaign, along with Hillary Clinton, was not arrogant and, and entitled acting, would have been not going to Wisconsin, not going to Michigan, where she got she got uh, sucker punched. I probably shouldn't say punched because that means I'm an evil, violent person. But in a figurative way, 
Bernie Sanders surprised the heck out of her in Michigan and whipped her in that primary. And it was a big shock. You would think you'd kind of say, hey, I may have a problem in Michigan. And since Donald Trump and his message of, you know, you've been sold out is a little bit like like uh, Bernie Sanders message, you would have thought she would have been there. She was never there. Um, I shouldn't say never. She wasn't there at the end. She wasn't campaigning there. Instead, <laughs> she was trying to win in, you know, in Arizona and different places. Well, they make choices. They lost. But to this day, they haven't owned up to even losing, much less the fact that I think they lost. The, the thing I hate worst about the kind of anti-Trump, you know, constant barrage is the way they treat Trump voters as if they're, in other words, they, you know, Trump's a racist, terrible, evil guy in every way. And, and you see him kind of twist things to fit that narrative that don't make sense and that I think are unfair. But then to, to so sully him, oftentimes, most oftentimes, I think on the racism charge unfairly, and then to just glom on that anyone who voted for him must have the same racist, evil, terrible, uh, geez, I'm going to forget, I'm getting old, uh, what were the deplorables, you know, as, as Hillary Clinton said, that makes me sick. And, and the reason being that I think people voted for Donald Trump for the right reasons. And what I mean by that isn't that, oh, they're brilliant to vote for Donald Trump, what a wonderful guy. But they didn't vote for him because he was a wonderful guy. They know he's not a wonderful guy. He's not the guy they want their kids to model after. And frankly, if, if, if you're a good parent, I don't think you've wanted your kids to model after any of the presidents or most of the people running the show in Washington. But um, anyway, they we we get, I think, to a... A, a point where they just label so much of America as deplorable when these people recognize we're in trouble, the the country isn't going the way it should go, and the people in Washington are just fine because they're doing quite well. And, you know, the, the country has thrown out the Republicans from Congress, then they threw out the Democrats from Congress, then they threw out at least half the Republicans in Congress. They made the right decision every time in terms of the, the party in power didn't deserve to stay in power. Now, choosing the other party was kind of problematic, but what can you do? And so anyway, this this issue to me is a sign of how in the tank the media is to be portraying things like this. And I realize this is a comedy show and so on. And if this was the only time, if this was the only time that that was uh, raised, then it'd be one thing. But this is raised all the time. And it's it feeds a bad dynamic. And it's just, it's, it's silly. It's ridiculous. I've heard a lot of people talk about this idea that the president wouldn't step down at least since George Herbert Walker Bush. In Port, in Port Townsend, my leftist friends were talking that Bush would not step down if he lost. So I was, I've been prepared for this for a long time. That is, that is funny. You mentioned something about that, and I thought, you know, I have not. Uh, I, I haven't heard anything like this since, uh, uh, you know, before Trump became president. Now, I have heard people for elections after elections, people in Florida questioning, well, how could it, you know, when, when Bush won so big <clears throat> in 2004, uh, a lot of people in different places, especially states that had been competitive that weren't so competitive uh, in that election who were just shocked um, and, and felt like there was some thing happening with the machines and so on. And, and look, I'm for all the, let's do elections as carefully as possible and, make it to where, like, I like there to be some sort of paper trail. You can have elections where you can audit those elections without losing the, you know, privacy and the secret ballot. And I think that's important. But I also think that for the most part, you know, 
people who talk about elections being stolen, presidential elections, um, I, I don't think any have been stolen in, uh, in recent times. I think I probably have to go back to the year of my birth, uh, 1960, there may have been one stolen. Yeah, well, that's almost certain. I think most historians sort of agree on that. Uh, and some historians believe that that's the reason, one of the reasons why uh, JFK was killed, uh, because the mafia was owed for that election in part. Have you heard, have you heard these conspiracy theories? I have, I have heard that conspiracy theory, and I, I've never really looked into it uh, very much. And I've, I have some, I know some people who I respect who've looked into it. One who was uh, knew a lot about it, and I won't out him here, but, uh, but who ended up at the end saying. I think it may have been Oswald. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, I think it's hard to, to figure out what it is. But I have always, uh, I have to admit, had a sense that if what I think, you know, what people say happened in Chicago and in Illinois to flip that election, if it was the mob and then, and then uh, Bobby's, you know, at the Justice Department going after the mob, there, sometimes if the mob gets hurt feelings, you know, there's no telling what they're going to do. So I've always, you know, I've always thought that's plausible. The problem is uh, with that, uh, with the Kennedy assassination, there's a lot of plausible, you know, that it was a CIA thing or that it was Castro or that, you know, there's a lot of plausible scenarios. It's just the evidence doesn't seem to be there to, to prove any of them. And sometimes Sometimes even the uh, the the one that the accepted uh, story doesn't seem so plausible, but that doesn't necessarily you know I, I don't think it's been disproven either. Yeah, I used to not care, but what more I learned about what happened on that day, as they say, I find that the official explanation wildly implausible, like so. Well, it I was just going to say we've talked, and I think we've talked about it on this podcast before. If we haven't, let's do it right now. They classified a lot of information about the Kennedy assassination. That's 1963. President Trump was in a position to declassify it all, declassified a lot, but held some back and I believe was asked to go back and hold more information back and decided to hold more information back. So our government, more than 50 years after that assassination, is still not willing to come clean as to here's everything we know about that assassination. And with the level of, of doubt that you have in the public, um, and you know, it was such a big deal, you know, it was a first memory for people like you and I at, at our age, um, first memory in life. Um, but and, and it was an awfully big deal, the president being assassinated in, in modern times like that. But um, anyway, it, it's the sort of thing that I guess, you know, people today probably aren't as uh, aware of it and, and so on. But it was an assassination that I think people never quite felt like they got all the information because they didn't. And uh, I hope before you and I leave this realm that uh, that we can force our government to give us all the information that they have. Yeah, um, and even the stuff they have given us, there's a lot of blacked out uh, sections of the of the publicly uh, the public information, the FOIA requests and the like. Uh, you know, Trump ran. One of his promises was to declassify the whole JFK assassination thing. And it is worth remembering that the last congressional study of the JFK assassination said it was a conspiracy. The, really? The, yes. This is not well known. I don't know why people don't know it, but the last congressional investigation into it said, yeah, it's, a, it's almost certainly a, a... But they didn't have enough information to determine. Right. And, right. and then... Uh, and we should mention, I, I just can't help but mention because it's so fascinating. I've, I've read <laughs> part of uh, Roger Stone's book on the JFK assassination, and he gives a lot of evidence that LBJ arranged it. LBJ arranged it with the cooperation of the CIA and the mafia. The mafia did the job, and we have the, there is a person who was in jail who claimed to have done it, and his, he was an assassin for the, uh, the mob, and he had all the specs down right. Now, this is, well, this is, all known, but it's not well known. I don't know why. Right. Well, and there may be, you know, it, it's 
he, he could have the specs right. He could still be wrong. I mean, it, it, it's so tough in these things to, um, you know, to kind of have enough of all the pieces to put together. And it's why I don't think, I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody can really be satisfied that they have a solid idea of what exactly happened until they've declassified it all. And 50 years after the fact, 50 years after the fact, you can't come clean on it all. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it, almost everybody who was involved is dead. Right. So basically, right. we're protecting something else. We're not even protecting individuals anymore. I mean, at the time when Donald Trump took office, I didn't think it would happen because George Herbert Walker Bush was still alive. Uh, because he's implicated in this. And well, he was the head of the CIA at one point, and he was probably a CIA man at the time. Uh, so there's a lot of weirdness involved in the whole thing. And I don't know what to make of it. I don't believe anything. I don't believe anything. I just suspect a lot. That's all. Right, right. And that's kind of what most of us are in. Right. And and the truth is, uh, I mean, that's the right place to be when it doesn't, what you're being told doesn't seem to make sense and you can't get all the information. And it's, it, I think it's important that we not just decide to like whatever, you know, conspiracy theory uh, sounds best to us. But I think we also have to recognize all of these conspiracy theories are to fill the gap for people who are trying to think what's happening. And if we had all the information, then there's still going to be a few crazy people somewhere with some cockamamie conspiracy theory. But the rest of us are going to go, yeah, yeah, please quiet down because I'm reading all about the actual facts of what's going on. And if you're not going to give us the facts of what's going on, then all of a sudden a lot of people are going to be listening to the conspiracy theories because it's at least that at least it's plausible. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. But that's the same is- position we're in on another uh, subject right now in the news. Uh, the Senate is uh, working to instruct the I think I got this right. Instruct the Pentagon to give a full report on UFOs. You know, without all the lies this time. One of the reasons many people suspect something's going wrong, you know, that, that, there, that there are UFOs that we have to worry about is because the U.S. government is giving us con- has been giving us contradictory information since 1950s, if not the 40s. They, they say one thing, then they take it back. They say one thing, and then they, somebody else in the government says another thing. They, they, you know, they make a report, an official report of the, to the U.S. government, and the head of the report... At the beginning and ending, you know, the, the, the beginning of the report and the end, the, the head of it, dismisses the whole thing as nonsense. And then inside the report, it doesn't do that. Uh, so you have all these contradictions. And that's one of the reasons we have uh, that issue still alive with us. It's not just because there's, there seems to be things that we're seeing. It's because the government keeps on lying. We don't know what they're lying about because they won't tell us what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, our, our first question should always be to any public official, politician: What are you lying about? Please. <laughs> and you know, Carl Gustav Jung thought that this was a horrible thing the U.S. government was doing. He said that the U.S. government's policy on UFOs was driving Americans crazy. It's uh, you know, it it just seems bizarre that they have been so weird about it and it does it encourages i mean it can't help but encourage people to think there's got to be more to this because of how weird the government has has acted toward it and and it is something that uh we should we 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 haven't written a lot about this We've, we've probably talked about it more than we've written about it but to me i mean again it's one of those things it's not as if we, we say, oh, we know what is happening exactly, because we don't. But we have to keep telling people we don't know what's happening because we have a government that, that obtains all kinds of information and then actively hides it from us. That's, that's not, a, I don't think we're getting our money's worth. Uh, yeah, what an idea. Well, it does make one feel disquiet. On Thursday, we talked about a deafening disquiet. And it's something that I'm very excited about, not the disquiet, but uh, or the deafening part of it, but the response to it. 
And uh, I have for years, uh, I started a group called Citizens in Charge, and we, we also then started a Citizens in Charge Foundation uh, that does educational and, and litigation work in the U.S. on initiative and referendum, direct democracy. And we have been active with international efforts as well. Uh, back in 2010, we held a U.S. conference on initiative and referendum as part of a global forum where people came to San Francisco at the Hastings Law School. And, uh, and we had four days of uh, all kinds of interesting discussions and speakers and, and uh, great fun. And then have traveled uh, to other places in the world for these global forums. One of the things that has occurred to me over the last couple of years, especially, and, and to a friend of mine, Dane Waters, who is on the uh, Citizens in Charge Foundation board and has also been really instrumental. He started the Initiative and Referendum Institute, which is now at the University of Southern California. He was instrumental in helping start the Initiative and Referendum Institute in Europe. Uh, and is on the board of Democracy International, which is a group that does a lot of stuff and is very active and helpful with these global forums um, that have been in South America and Asia and Europe and the United States. Um, and what has occurred to me, and of course um, didn't, didn't have to twist any arms, is that we have all kinds of problems around the world that are very serious and 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 that democracy can play a role direct democracy in solving some of these problems and in and one in just leading people to think about who should decide the future of taiwan or the future of hong kong or the future of catalonia um and i think we would argue in each case well the people who live there should decide democratically and in a fair and and free election. And of course, um, a lot of world leaders will say the same thing, that the they believe in self-determination and they believe in democracy and so on. And really, the, on, the only country that runs around saying we don't believe in self-determination and democracy is China. And, you know, there's other countries who don't believe in it either, but they kind of actively say that. For instance, if Taiwan wants to hold a, uh, a referendum to declare their independence even more than they're already independent. Um, well, China said, we'll, we'll launch a military invasion if you do that. Um, and of course, there's no democracy there. And of course, that's been the whole battle in Hong Kong, that they're supposed to be this autonomous, uh, you know, there's two, two systems. One is the freer system in Hong Kong, well, the, the mainland said no and uh, and has taken that way. And of course, they they didn't like even even now, even before the clampdown, they don't have any real democracy. They don't get to choose. Carrie Lam, who's the chief executive of the government in uh, Hong Kong, is not elected by the people of Hong Kong. I mean, there may be some vote, but she's chosen. And here's who you get to vote for. Um, and just in the same way that this national security law that they just implemented, that they're now implementing in Hong Kong, wasn't passed by the Hong Kong legislature, it was passed in Beijing um, by people who are not elected in free and fair elections. Anyway, it, it, and it goes on and on. And we raise in this ad uh, the, the name of the campaign that we've started and that these other organizations are helping just promote. It's, uh, it's called Stop Fighting, Start Voting. And the first ad in, in a series that we'll do mention Hong Kong and what's happening there today, and also mention Sri Lanka and the Tamils, who at the end of the civil war in Sri Lanka, this is about a decade ago, uh, 40,000 Tamil civilians, according to the UN, were, were killed. So some serious, serious violence and brutality and genocide. Um, and, and so what are they asking for? The, the Tamils are asking for, we want a vote and an ability to form our own homeland here on the island in areas that are very much 
uh, Tamil majority and and so on. It doesn't, you know, the fact that we did a did a commercial about it doesn't solve this, you know, the 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 problems there. It doesn't mean that those forty thousand people haven't been killed. It doesn't heal all the civil war. It doesn't mean that the Sri Lankan government is going to immediately say yes. You're right. Why didn't we think of that? Um, but the whole purpose behind this ad campaign isn't to, you know, automatically have everyone do the right thing. It's to get people involved in thinking and working and agitating for these changes and to be aware of these problems that are happening um, and to work to try to get democratic solutions to those problems. And the, the reason that I think, you know, uh, I think most people out there, oh, yeah, we're all for this. We're, you know, what's the big deal? The big deal is that governments do this. In other words, we're all for this in America. And so the American government's out there raising the flag of democracy and helping all these countries not have these problems. And I would tell you, well, that's some fantasy because the United States government and the UN, for the most part, are not out there effectively agitating for the right policies and demanding democratic uh, uh, processes before they will do all kinds of things. I mean, we, we have, in terms of our allies around the world, we haven't made that a big deal. Um, in, in And almost every institution that I think we would expect, the United Nations, the United States, the EU, to be out there promoting freedom, I don't know why we, we expect that, because it hasn't happened, it's not happening, and frankly, I don't think it's going to happen until we're mobilized in some bigger way than we are today. And so I, I say all that just to say, the purpose of this campaign is to get real people, regular folks, thinking about this and doing something about this and to get non-governmental organizations. And when, when I'm doing stuff internationally, people are always talk about NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And I always think, oh, what a, what a, a ridiculous term because it kind of, you know, someone in government came up with it because that's why you're a non-government organization. But these are private citizen organizations and that's exactly who's got to get involved. And so it's not just you and I as individuals or the people listening um, or thousands of others around the world, but it's also organizations like Citizens in Charge Foundation, like Democracy International and like uh, um you know, Amnesty International does stuff to to highlight people who are being abused by government. It doesn't mean that that everybody who's being abused is immediately released from prison. And, you know, the dictators say, sorry, we ever did anything wrong. Thanks for pointing it out to us, Amnesty International. But it's critical that we be focused on that. And and I look at this and I think the biggest problem in spreading more freedom and democracy uh, and when I say democracy, I know sometimes then people, oh, well, we're going to vote on everything. We're talking about a democratic system of governance that respects individual freedom. If it doesn't respect individual freedom, it's not democracy. And and, and this isn't just me. I, I go to these different international things and I, I ask people, you know, well, what do you think in terms of what is democracy and so on? I, I've never run into anyone who says we're voting on everything. Well, I take that back. I take that back. I did run into one fellow who kind of had that idea, and it, it was a little frightening. But anyway, for the most part, these go hand in hand. And I think I think a lot of times libertarians who are very rightfully skeptical, skeptical of democracy, we want democracy to only control um, majority vote only on what the majority or the the people, the the the, uh, the state, whatever. In other words, whatever is a legitimate function of government, that should be decided by majority rule. If it's not, then the government shouldn't have any role there. 
And uh, and so, you know, if you believe government should control everything, it, it, it's, uh, it's a little different. But most of us don't believe that. We believe government ought to be limited. And it's important that where government does exist and is exerting force, that that be controlled by citizens and that we be that we have set democratic processes that allow us to control. And and the biggest problem that we have is that our representative democracy doesn't represent us. None of us feel that way. And it's, you know, this isn't on the left or the right. They feel that way. It's everywhere, left, right, and in the middle. And so we need, we need that ability to represent ourselves. That's direct democracy. And I think it can make a difference in a lot of these uh, problems around the world. It's the best path to go on. And it's critical that we, regular folks, Americans and, uh, and non-Americans, living, breathing homo sapiens, uh, and not just our governments, are involved in spreading freedom and democracy. It strikes me, it that, strikes me that, uh-oh, uh-oh, I hear myself I hear in myself. the background. You're just, I'm just You're echoing just, all over the place. I'm, gonna, I'm going to say what you are going to say since we're having technical difficulties. And you tell me if I'm not right. I think that's a wrap. And we had a great Friday commentary called precedent, Precedented, it's going to screw that up, Precedented Payments. And I think you want to go to thisiscommonsense.org and read that commentary. But I will just tell you that we renamed the CARES Act. The CARES Act is uh, Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. We renamed that the Corpse Act, the Coronavirus Overpayment, Relief, Prodigality, Stupidity, and Eek Act. Go to thisiscommonsense.org. Read the rest of it. Thanks, Paul. I guess I'll wrap this up. Though, Was I right? Well, yes, of course you're right. Getting in under an hour, that's almost perfect, right? Okay, so this has been This Week of Common Sense. And my name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at localfoco.net. And uh, until next weekend, why don't I go to thisiscommonsense.org every day of the week for commentary by Paul Jacob.